Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet John Carney, the Irish musician and director of the new movie Flora and Son. It's a new Apple TV Plus comedy about a mom, played by the fabulous Eve Hewson, who tries to connect with her rebellious son with music. The director of the Academy Award-winning film Once tells me about how music saved his life and why he didn't include my favorite Dublin pub in the film. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet Michael Crummy, an award-winning poet and novelist from Newfoundland and Labrador. The Toronto Sun called his latest novel The Adversary. It's a story about two rivals who represent the largest fishing operations on Newfoundland's northern outpost. They called it a masterpiece. We'll talk about the novel and how it begins with one of the best opening lines I've read in recent memory. Stick around to find out more. First, though, let's get to know actor Peter Fascinelli. You know him from roles on TV shows like Six Feet Under, Damages, and Nurse Jackie, but he'll likely always be best known as Dr. Carlisle Cullen in the wildly popular Twilight film franchise. Today, we talk about his new movie, On Fire, the story of a family who lives in a trailer home in the woods who are suddenly confronted by a wildfire. Fire's spreading fast. We gotta get out of here. As we're together, we're gonna be okay. Where am I supposed to tell these people to go? We can't save everybody. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my family out alive. Peter Fascinelli joined me via Zoom. I was interested to know uh, about your co-direction of it, because Nick Lyon is credited as the director, but there was, from what I understand, kind of an unusual circumstance that saw you step in. Well, I, I signed on to do this film. When I got the script, I, I thought, what a... What a interesting uh story because it's been all over the news that the fires keep happening and and uh and this is a film that's based uh inspired by true events and it's an amalgamation of a lot of different stories and so i signed on as an actor uh on the film to play the lead role and uh and and i worked with nick collaboratively we talked about the art my character in the story and and uh there's this kind of overall a family survival thrill, thriller uh, kind of umbrella that we're, we're, you know, the film represents. But underneath that umbrella, it was important to me that we have a lot of different takeaways from that film because I didn't feel like it was a film that was meant to bring awareness to this issue. We have enough awareness of of, of what's happening with these fires that in, in the news. So I thought, okay, if, if we have the awareness of it, what is this film for? You know, what are we making this film for? And for us, it was really to you know, show the inner workings of, of like what it might be like, a simulation of you uh, having an experience like this so that when you finish this film, you can really take pause and go, well, I would never want that happening to me or anyone I love. What can I do to protect my home? What can I do? You know, there's fire prevention month in October. Um, there's lots of different things you can do to protect your house, to protect your family. Uh, but on a bigger global issue, like maybe we could take pause to figure out a way to curtail these fires. Um, I know humanity has come together to solve bigger issues. So so how can we come together to, to solve this one? Um, and, and it was a wonderful experience working with Nick and working, and as we were working together and and, and uh, working collaboratively to make the scenes stronger and make the themes uh, more stronger and, and have more setups and payoffs. In the midst of all that, he ended up getting COVID. Uh, and so, 
here we are in the middle of filming and we're too far out at sea to, to you know, go back to port or to stop. Um, and we're an independent film. But I think at that point, Nick really believed in me as a filmmaker too. I've directed before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and he thought, you know, hey, I, I know you know what this movie is about. I know you understand my vision. I'm going to pass the baton on to you. Can you finish up? And, you know, I took I took that on and and, and uh, ended up finishing up the film. And, and and then that collaboration kind of spilled over into editing. And, you know, Nick was said, you know, let's let's celebrate that collaboration that we've had the whole time. And then, you know, in the midst of filming and in the editing room why don't we take a co-directing credit because the, and celebrate that collaboration? And I thought that was really nice of him. I hear your passion for this subject when I hear you speak, uh, but I'm wondering in the beginning, what was it that made you sign on to this? Because when you sign on to a film, it's yeah. not just, oh, I'm going to work on this thing for a week and then I'm, I'm out of here. You're giving the next year of your life possibly yeah. uh, to one project. So when you commit, you have to make sure it's something you really want to do. And what was it about this one particularly? Well, I was passionate about the subject matter. You know, a lot of times you go into a film and, and, and it's just meant to entertain and that's fine. And I've done those and those are wonderful too. Um, anything that takes you out of your life and helps you escape your life and allows you to go on an emotional journey, I'm all in. Uh, but this one really... Uh, I, I felt had had an even bigger purpose because because of all of those takeaways we were able to fit under the umbrella of the the, the family survival film because this felt to me like a, a throwback an independent version of one of those big family survival thrillers right. uh, you know that you see you're listening to Peter Fascinelli on the Richard Krauss show his new film on fire is in theaters now but underneath that umbrella which is meant to entertain um, you know there are a lot of takeaways and and it was important for for me uh to make sure we had those takeaways otherwise i i didn't want to exploit you know the, the the issue you know i wanted to actually use this film to to uh to to, to make a statement and to also have have bigger um you know um messages messaging within that so this is a film that you know at the end of the film we celebrate firefighters we celebrate 911 operators we give them you know um we give them credit for the for the jobs that they do interesting that the film doesn't just focus on one uh person so you talk about the family the family but often in a movie like this it would be uh one member of the family who emerges the hero <laughs> one member of the family yeah. that says i know all the answers and i've got yeah. it all figured out and this is what we're going to do and that's not the case in this movie yeah. in this movie everyone has a piece of the puzzle that they're yeah. able to kind of put together using their own smarts and their own particular bits of wisdom that they're able to put together and and come up with a solution to some very uh, dangerous, uh, certainly dangerous looking and some life and death situations. And I thought that made this film very unique. Well, I'm so thankful that you you got that because that was one of the takeaways we we intended was, you know, there are those throwbacks to those big hundred million dollar, you know, survival family dramas and the dad's hanging off the building and he's like, follow me. And he's the patriarch and he's going to get everybody out. And like this family, this dad's 
just doing the best he can <laughs> you know he's under the um, he starts off the movie under already an amount, a tremendous amount of stress and pressure where his he's, he has a new baby on the way his wife's eight months pregnant he's got a new uh job that he's he started this construction corporate company that he doesn't know if it's going to make it or not he's got a son going to college he doesn't know if he's going to be able to pay for that he's got a dad who's sick he's paying his medical bills for it and, and and his dad's you know dying and 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 so he's already under this immense stress and pressure. And then this fire comes to town and it's off in the distance. And as a dad, he's thinking, yeah, it's not going to come to us, you know? And that's another takeaway. People think, oh, it's, it's off in the distance, not going to come. And then the wind shifts and it's at your doorstep. So it shows you how fast these things turn around. Well, the movie really shows you that in the sense that your character, the father, goes to a, a, a department store, like a, a hardware right. store, and you're buying hoses and all buckets yeah. and things like this you're buying stuff that you're going to need but in that short amount of time mm -hmm. everything changes and yeah. i thought that was really effectively done you don't have to show me the flames ripping through the thing and the speed at which they come we see we see some of that but i thought it was really effective to focus on you in that moment and show just how fast it can happen while you're doing just sort of an everyday thing yeah, he goes to the hardware store. By the time he comes back, the roads are closed and he can't get to his family. And it happens that fast. And then you're stuck and you're sitting there going, my God, how do I, when you get separated like that from your family and you're thinking all these horrible things that could happen and and that panic, you know, that's that's an experience that you've, you know, people have had. I've, I've, I've had those feelings of like helplessness, you know? Um, so so when the, my character ends up getting thrown into this this uh, harrowing experience and he goes through this journey with his family and 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 at the end of that i think he comes out of it feeling like all of those huge issues that i had before are, are anthills compared to what i just went through and and the fact that he has his family he knows he can get through anything you know and the beauty like you said is that each family member contributes and so they all have heroic moments and they lean on each other and they grow with each other and uh one of the moments that always stick out for me and it's a small moment but it's a grounded moment in the film that, that it's hard to write those things and it was written actually is he's on the road with his you know trying to get out of this uh, you know doesn't know which way to go and his son has a moment of pessimism and he says do you, you know i don't think we're gonna make it and he snaps at him he says we are uh, and he says, how do you know? He says, because I'm your dad. And I said so. And it's one of those lines that dads say, you know, and he's any he, any he, and he, I've said it, you know, and it's just a moment of frustration. And my wife calls me on it and my bad behavior. And, and I apologize. And I thought that is so beautiful because you don't see that in, in those bigger films. It's like the dad's always got the answers. He's got, you know, he's always the one to look up to. And here he is taking onus for his bad behavior and that's the patriot that's the patriarch of a family you know what i mean a person who can uh snap and then say i was wrong and i apologize and i love you you know uh that that to me is a man heavy ash raining down for miles that's yeah, close should we be worried i hope not destruction is catastrophic this is no joke best thing to do is fireproof the house. What do we do now? We wait. We pray. Well, congratulations on the film.
Thank you. Congratulations on getting it done after all. <laughs> thank, you, thank, so, you, uh, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right, man, talk to you soon. That was Peter Fascinelli. Check out his film On Fire in theaters right now. The musical dramedy Flora and Son, now streaming on Apple TV+, Plus, is a tribute to the power of music as an emotional bomb and hits all the right chords with a breakout performance from Eve Hewson as a single mom trying to connect with her rebellious son. At its core, the movie is a love story, but it's not a rom-com. This is about the love of family, music, and self, and is a rousing crowd-pleaser that breathes the same air as director John Carney's other films, Sing Street and Once. John Carney joins me in this segment to tell me about how music rescued him and why he didn't include my favorite Dublin pub in the movie. Young Max, one more offense and you'll be behind bars. Flora, you're his mother find him something to do what are you doing right now you don't want to know what are you hoping to get out of this i thought this guitar might make me something i'm cool i'll be back in an hour i don't care how annoying is he very annoying i might learn the guitar myself here's my one-on-one interview with john carney congratulations on the film Thank you very much. So tell me a little bit uh, about music as a lifeline. That, to me, is the through line uh, of this film. And it certainly, from my reading about you, seems to be very true in your life as well. So tell me about your personal experience with that. Well, as it turns out, it's true of of, of many musicians, Mm -hmm. um, which everybody thinks that's private and personal to themselves until they meet other musicians (laughs) and you tell that story and they're like, that's exactly how I... Music is a, or rock music, let's say, is is a thing, I think, that appeals to people who are falling outside some of the normal, regular groups right. in school or in, you know, whatever age you're at. There's some dog whistle, and I mean that in a positive sense, that term is very <laughs> negative at the moment, but there's some little thing, look in somebody's eye that, like, you're a fellow journeyman on the road right. of rock and roll, you know, when you're 13, because you're not... <laughs> the guy thrown the thrown the amazing pass or yep. right at school or essays. Um, there's a kind of a connection between these, these misfits and they form bands mm-hmm. often and they come together and they form their own club. That's a little bit outside and a little bit different, but it validates them and it often gives a sense of um, control in, 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 in a rudderless life. Um, and that's definitely what music was for me. I mean, it was the greatest gift to get a guitar um, because it connected me with those other like-minded people. Um, so I'm forever grateful and forever exploring that, that that theme, I think, in my films. Yeah, you also say that all the best decisions you've ever made in your life, uh, you made while playing music. Yeah, I think that's true. Or music was playing. Or music or was, was in, playing. Yeah. And I don't know if it was chicken or egg. You know, did I make the decision because the music was... Was, was playing uh, be- because of what the music was speaking to me or, or you know, the, the, the other way around. Um, but it seems to me that music is the thing that kind of, if I was, um, if there was a, a ambiguity or I wasn't sure or ambivalence about something, music was the thing that told you to go for it. Right. You know, whether it was, and I mean like Frank Sinatra singing, <laughs> go and fly with me. Oh, let's get those tickets. Or, you, know, you know, I mean, that's a very literal verb. But oh, f- let's, Frank says we should go. Let's get out of here. Well, tell me then about Flora, because uh, she seems to be the uh, a direct manifestation of 
you and perhaps your own mother and dumpster diving is something yeah, that you have done uh, in real life. So tell yeah. me a little bit about putting all that together and creating this character. Yeah, well, I mean, with the mother thing, I, I definitely have been thinking a lot about my own mother and that journey, but I didn't want to literally do a thing about a little middle class guy who has a mother and my, my that, yeah. which is my story, you know, or, and I didn't want to get into to, to it being too personal mm -hmm. um, for various reasons. One being actually that I wanted to tell a, a story. I didn't want to write a memoir or something right. like that. So, but I, so I was thinking a lot about her. And then once I had the dumpster idea of a mother and a son, I was like, oh, well, let's, let's, um, it seems like, um, I could re retool this and cover the cover the trails to my cave a little bit, and still tell a story about my mother, but like disguise it a little bit. Yeah, and you know, a tough working class inner city young mother. My mother wasn't a young mom. You know unemployed and with the very very different from my my own story you're listening to john carney on the richard krauss show his film flora and son is streaming now on apple tv but it was my i was a bit of a delinquent when i was a kid so i could see element i could put elements of that and own it in a nice way without it being painful for me to, to watch or anything like that um i don't actually feel that that, that Eve is doing anything like my, my, my mother, but I do feel like I personally own the story and I'm part of it and I have things to say about receiving a guitar from, you, you know, your, the, the, the mother figure and the gratitude for that and the, the gift of music and what that gift means as opposed to just as a parent saying, I'm going to get you something yeah. or I'll get you this or, I, you know, my mother did it. She gave me... An instrument, which is, and back then it really, there weren't a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, it was a different time. And they would have been expensive, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And you weren't seeing people throw them out in dumpsters <laughs> like right. you are now, yeah. where nobody seems to give a damn about things as yeah. much. But back then it was like, you know, I've got a bass guitar. It was wood and wire and pegs and steel and all the various, many elements of the world are going into this mm -hmm. instrument. If you think about music in that way, like the instrument is made of, different parts of yeah. you know elemental yeah yeah the the, yeah. the scratch plate is mother of pearl yeah. the strings are <laughs> wire the, there's a bit of ivory in old guitars yeah. there's cat gut on violins and then from that you make another element which is yeah. not strictly speaking an element but you make music from yeah. that which goes out into the world like it's it's deep stuff <laughs> well i love how this movie kind of subverts what i thought it was going to be about I thought we were in for a love story. I thought, and we are, it is a love story, but okay. it's a different but love the title story. title didn't give you a clue? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was wondering, does that give it away too much? I, I don't think it does. Yeah. I don't think it does. And and I, I just, I, I love that it it, it is Took a love turn. story. Yeah. yeah, but it takes a turn and it becomes something else. And it becomes about love very much, the love of the sun, the love of music, the transformative mm -hmm. nature of, of art and how music can change things for people. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really touching. And we have to talk about Eve Hewson. Loved her in Bad Sisters. Yes, uh, and, and in this movie, I will tell you, fell in love with her even more deeply. This is, I can't imagine anyone else in this role. Yeah, she definitely did that thing, which is she, she, and it is a bit like being in a band. It's like once you have that person right. singing, you couldn't imagine anybody else yep. doing that. Yep. There's no other singer that could be that person. And she did that to this movie. 
Uh, and not in a selfish way, not in a like, I let me, you know, she was like, I'm going to make this so that you could never imagine anybody else. <laughs> and not only that, you can't get anybody else. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was very cool. And it shows in the movie. I mean, she yeah. owns the, she owns the film. Uh, oh boy, boy, yeah. is she ever. I mean, she it's really just, does. it's, it's powerful. It's funny. It's touching. It's yeah. raunchy. I just, it, it, it yeah. touches on so many buttons. It's it's fantastic. Well, that's what being in Dublin is like. There's a lot of people in Dublin, you know, who can kind of like cycle through <laughs> four huge personality yeah. dimensions in like a quick cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I was just in Dublin. Oh, and, yeah. And so I was disappointed that the long haul didn't make it into the film. Yeah, that was a bit too of an old man's pub. Though, for, for I her. loved it there. That's a great bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. On uh, Georgia Street, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, there's a lot of great bars in Dublin where... There's no shortage of them. But <laughs> that's south of the river. We were north of the river. And people right. who grow up there tend to kind of hang out in that area. Yeah, by the spiral, right? By, it, yeah, by the spiral. exactly. Yeah. That will yeah. be on that side. But there's a great pub we shot in there. Um, the pub we actually filmed in is now closed. And that pub, I don't remember what it was called, was an amazing, like, yeah. stories of incredible music. And, you know, everybody, Andy Irvine wow. played there. Then Damien Dempsey would come in and do a session at night. It was a music yeah. bar with, like, the best of the best. Wow. Um, pretty holy place, yeah. Well, uh, you get a sense of Dublin. You get a sense of the characters. It's, it's fantastic oh, stuff. Congratulations. Really like yeah. Thank you. Thanks for helping spread the word. We need it. My pleasure, yeah. That was John Carney on The Richard Krause Show. Check out his new movie, Flora and Son, over there on Apple TV+. Great music, great story, and a really wonderful performance from Eve Hewson, who I don't think we mentioned in the interview, is Bono's daughter, by the way. The Toronto Star said, My guest in this segment, Michael Crummy, has emerged over the last two decades as one of Canada's most impressive and consistent writers. He's an award-winning poet and novelist from Newfoundland and Labrador. He is also the author of the novels The Innocence, Sweetland, and Galore, and the poetry collections Arguments with Gravity and Passengers. The Adversary, his latest novel, centers on two rivals who represent the largest fishing operations on Newfoundland's northern outpost, when a wedding that would have secured Abe Strap's hold on the shore falls apart, it sets off a series of events that lead to year after year of violence and vendettas and a seemingly endless feud. Michael Crummy joined me via Zoom. It must kind of blow your mind to have the Toronto Star... Uh, the book isn't even out yet. As we're talking, the book, I think, comes out tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it's already right. been called a masterpiece. Now, does that praise kind of play with your head in any way? <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort of a, it's a business. And there are great things that happen for a book and good things that happen for a book and bad things that happen for a book. This is a great thing. So... <laughs> You know, I just have to leave any kind of uh, personal opinions about that opinion to myself <laughs> and take that as a really great thing for the book. <laughs> well, they also mentioned in that same article, uh, the opening line. And the opening line was, there was a killing sickness on the shore that winter, and the only services at the church were funerals. And it goes on to describe uh, other great opening lines, like from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And there's another, there's a few of them that they mention. And I wonder, as an author, 
how important to you is a big grabby opening line like that? Or is that just something that this reviewer happened to pick up on? Yeah, I think it was just something that he happened to pick up on. I, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the first line as I, like maybe more of the first paragraph or something like that. Um, but I have to admit, like, I think that was the first line I wrote for the book. <laughs> um, I, when I sat down day one, that was the line that came out. And it, it did feel like that was the place to start. You know, it really felt like that that was the tenor that I was hoping to set for the story that was going to follow. Well, it's a much different tone than your last book, The Innocence. Uh, so I guess you want to maybe, maybe it's subconscious, I don't know, just differentiate the two books. There is some overlap. There are a character or two that, that appear uh, in both books, but this is a much different book. So maybe that opening line is uh, a declaration of war in a way of just saying, nope, this is going to be a different experience. Yeah, yeah. And there was nothing unconscious about that. Like that was a deliberate and my sense of this book, actually, and it's not at all a sequel mm. to The Innocence, um, because it actually happens parallel to it. So it starts at the same time. So the killing sickness at the start of The Adversary is the sickness that kills the parents and the sister of the brother and sister in The Innocence. Mm -hmm. So they start at the same time and they proceed along the same uh, timeline. But what I was trying to do, what I decided I wanted to try and do with this book was to write a book that was the mirror image, the mm -hmm. opposite of The Innocence. And you're right, like The Innocence is a pretty dark book in terms of how difficult the life of that brother and sister are. Um, but the light in the book is the love between the brother and sister. It's their uh, desire for the other person to survive in the world that allows them to carry on. Um, and that book is kind of a, a twisted Adam and Eve story. But, and so what I decided to do, I was thinking about uh, Blake's Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, where the, the, he has these Songs of Innocence, which are these lyric poems about the beauty of childhood and about lambs playing in the fields and flowers. And then he writes Songs of Experience, where he uses the exact same setup, the same characters, some of the same titles, but he flips them on their head completely. You're listening to best-selling author Michael Crummy on The Richard Krause Show. His new novel, The Adversary, is available now wherever fine books are sold. So you have children in poverty on the streets of London, children being forced to work as chimney sweeps, lambs being taken to the slaughterhouse. And I was really interested in trying to write a book that would be the absolute opposite of the life of those that brother and sister in The Innocents. And it's, as you say, so instead of Adam and Eve, it is it is Cain and Abel. And the brother and sister here um, despise one another. And and their uh, competition for power mm -hmm. in that tiny community is really what moves everything in the book. Well, the community uh, is called Mock Beggar. Now, there is a place in Newfoundland called Mock Beggar, but that's not where this book happened. So you've taken the name, but uh, created a new place. So tell me a little bit about your thought process there. Well, um, 
I, I was thinking one of the books that I read when I was doing the research for the innocence was a, uh, a history of Bonavista, which mm -hmm. is a community on the Northeast coast of Newfoundland. It's uh, according to legend, the place where Cabot first landed uh, in the so-called new world. Um, and uh, I was reading it just because there was, uh, it, it covered some of the time period around when I imagine the innocence took place. And there was all kinds of fantastic stuff in there that I just stole lock stock. I just <laughs> took. And, um, and one of the things I took was the name of this community, which I had never heard of before, actually, Mock Beggar. Yeah. And I had kind of assumed that Mock Beggar had just been folded into Bonavista and no longer existed. So it was free to be used. Uh, it was only after the fact that I found out that Mock Beggar still exists. Um, <laughs> so I, I just moved it further up the northern, uh, more northeast coast, closer to the northern peninsula. Um, and I just love the feel of that title and the word mm -hmm. bigger and the word mock and the way that those things work together. Um, and of course, in the innocence, it's always off stage. It's only talk. It's only mentioned. Uh, but when I sat down to write this book, of course, I was forced to to create a a world uh, for the name Mock Beggar. So uh, so I just set about um, trying to create that world. And the the starting place for me was. Um, one of the characters, historical characters that I found in Bruce Wiffen's book was a, a merchant named George Ryder from around the turn of the uh, 19th century, who was a complete <laughs> like he was a drunkard, a bully, a brawler. He shot and killed an Irish servant during a, a, an argument. And the only repercussion he faced was at some point after that being named Justice of the Peace. He, re he recruited and brought a group of prostitutes from St. John's to Bonavista and set up his own brothel while he was justice of the peace. <laughs> and he had zero redeeming qualities, none. And, uh, and originally I had thought to try to get him into the innocence somehow, but he was too, he was too big. And I just wanted to stay with the brother and sister as much as possible. But when I was thinking about writing a book that would be the mirror image of the innocence, he was the first thing I thought of because he seemed to re represent the exact opposite of the best of the, the brother and sister. Um, but I'll be honest, I could not get started. I, for months, I was thinking, what do I do with this guy? Right? right. He's an ass that's a dead end. Mm -hmm. like he's someone with no interior life. That's a complete dead end for a writer. But eventually, I finally, I had one of those duh moments. If uh, if this book was going to be a mirror image of the innocence, then there had to be a sister. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I thought that, I had a book. He says he wrote this novel as a way to come to grips with the anxiety and despair that's playing out in our politics and economic world right now. I asked him why. Yeah, I, I mean, it's clearly, I, I don't think a reader has to know this or see the connection to um, to get something from the book. I mean, I'm hoping that it stands as a thing unto itself, mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a novel. 
but there's no question that the my motivation for writing this story was um, my own, as you say, anxiety and fear and and anger. Mm-hmm. Um, just living through the last eight, ten years of what we've all lived through, you know, which is uh, a definite move towards authoritarianism around the world, towards oligopoly, where oligarchs, I mean, at Putin's Russia seems to be everybody's model for how they want the world to look, where the very rich own everything and control everything. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, if you look at what has happened south of the border with the rise of Trump, I mean, Trump in some ways, um, I think of Abe as a kind of Trumpian figure. And like Trump is somebody who has, as far as I can tell, no interior life. That his only way to uh, assess his worth in the world is how many people does he control? How much money does he control? How much of the world around him? Uh, does he think he owns? And he's kind of like an id on two legs, right? Um, and a- that's Abe. Abe is just a walking id. Mm-hmm. Um, the the widow is much subtler and much more cunning and much more able to give the impression to people that she's on their side. Uh, and I didn't have anyone in particular in mind for that, although I think Putin, for for a long time after he first came to power, that was how he operated. Um, so I think what I did in this book is I took the worst of everything I could see in our world. And I thought I would just uh, take those dynamics to this tiny little community and then let them play out as I think they would play out. Uh, and it was it was a very conscious decision on my part not to give myself an out mm. as a writer. Like the temptation for me as a writer is to um, have some light at the end of the tunnel, right? To give a reader an out, right? To to try and say no, it's really bad, but but I decided I I'm this is the worst of what we have the worst of what we are and if we allow it it's uh its own way this is what this is where we end and where we end is somewhere really really dark you're listening to best-selling author michael crummy on the richard krauss show his new novel the adversary is available now wherever fine books are sold i have to just ask you about uh the vernacular uh of the the characters and the way that they speak there are amazing little phrases sprinkled throughout the book that i had never heard of uh before uh so tell me a little bit about what uh, prinked up mean, uh, means what bedizened is. <laughs> I mean, the dictionary of Newfoundland English has always been one of my go-tos. Mm. Everything I've ever written, I've spent some time reading the dictionary of Newfoundland English. And it's just an incredible uh, uh, compilation of the, of the ways that Newfoundlanders adapted English to the place that they found themselves. Um, but when I started doing the research for The Innocence, I realized, actually, this is so far back because it was the turn of the 19th century, so 1790s into the early 1800s. Most of the characters are actually Europeans. 
and uh, and more so for the adversary. Like almost all of the characters that come into the book from outside are European characters. So as well as the Dictionary of Newfoundland English, I went looking for something that would tell me how people from England would speak English uh, at that time. And I found this phenomenal book. Uh, book. It's called uh, The Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. <laughs> and it was compiled in the 1790s and updated then, and I think, in 1811. Uh, and vulgar at the time just meant common. So this is how common people speak. But it was it was sailors and prostitutes and uh, people who lived around the docks and uh, criminals, pickpockets. Um, and uh, there was an incredible amount of vulgarity in that dictionary. <laughs> but vulgarity that was so uh, outrageously funny and creative that I, I like I just. I just stole hand over fist from that book. And part of what that does, of course, being able to put those words and phrases into the mouths of these characters is it makes them feel like they're from that time. Even if you've never heard those expressions before, uh, they're talking the way people spoke at the time, which makes them feel rooted, I think, in the time. Um, and also, um, it it is so uh, unlike the language that we speak today and is so uh, colorful that it adds, I mean, in a book this dark, I think it adds a little bit of leaven to the story, you know? And uh, someone uh, I was speaking to last week was talking about how many awful things happen to people in this book, you know, <laughs> <laughs> from from like births gone horribly awry to like um, having their hands branded to amputations. And she said, but the language that you use to describe it is so, she said, I'm hesitant to use the word beautiful, but it's, it's sort of at odds. The language that I'm using is a little bit at odds with the kind of awfulness that's happening all through the book. And I hadn't really thought about it till that moment, but I think in a sense, I'm after, I'm trying to cre recreate my sense of awe mm -hmm. when I'm writing about these things that people experienced and survived. You know, that, that in many ways, these kinds of unbelievably horrific experiences that we can hardly imagine, they weren't daily events, but they were not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And and so the language for me is a way to try and express my uh, disbelief and wonder, I guess, at what people were forced to and were capable of living through. I loved bedizened. Uh, who knows really how to pronounce it? Uh, it's a, yep. the, the, the real pronunciation <laughs> is probably lost to time. But bedizened, and the definition is a flashy kind of dressing that looks utterly ridiculous. Why that word ridiculous. isn't used every single day today? I don't know. I know. I love that one. That was Michael Crummy on the Richard Krause Show. Find his book, The Adversary, wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Michael for dropping by. A big thanks to Peter Fasanelli for coming by. Find his film, On Fire, at movie theaters right now. Also, a big thanks to John Carney. Find his wonderful film, Flora and Son, over there on Apple TV+. 
As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Mm-hmm.